Section 13 of The End of the Middle Age, 1273-1453 by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7. French History, 1328-1380, Part 1. In 1328, as we have already seen, Philip VI came to the throne, and prospects seemed bright. The new king was chivalrous and magnificent. He established a noble court at Vincennes, held the tournaments and fetes so dear to that age, and collected round him rulers and knights from many foreign lands. He was extremely pious, gave costly gifts to religious objects, went in person on pilgrimages, and in his home life was a good husband and an affectionate father. It remained to be seen whether he would be a good king. Before turning to more interesting matters, there is one territorial change to notice which was made on Philip's accession. Navarre, which had come by marriage to Philip the Fair, was once more separated from France and bestowed on Louis X's daughter Joan, whose son, Charles the Bad of Navarre, was to play an important part in coming events. Some fear was felt as to the attitude Edward III might take up in regard to his own claim to the French throne. But none too securely established himself at this date, he consented, though with some reluctance and delay, to do homage to Philip as his suzerain for the French possessions. Possibly, if there had been no other reason for war than Edward's nearness to the throne, matters might have gone no farther. But added to the natural antagonism between French and English, inevitable so long as England clung to her lands beyond the sea, and to the personal jealousy between two rival sovereigns, there were other causes at work, slowly but surely leading in the direction of war. As before, Scotland and Flanders are important in this connection. Edward III, very early in his reign, became involved in a fresh Scotch war in support of the claims of Edward Balliol against David Bruce. The Scots, in favor of Bruce and independence, applied for help to France, and Philip, glad of the opportunity, sent troops to their assistance. This was bad enough, the fact that the French king was turning more than longing eyes upon the Guienne territory was worse, but fear for English trade was worst of all. England in those days was particularly celebrated for her breed of sheep, of which the wool was good and long, and much sought after for making into cloth. Hence the great importance of our connection with Flanders, the country above all others where weaving was most actively carried on. The Flemings wove our wool, and we bought their cloth, to the mutual satisfaction of both parties. Philip was extremely jealous of the trade of England, and ready to hamper it in every way. He was also much interested in Flemish affairs. The internal condition of Flanders in this reign was rather different from what it had been during that of Philip IV of France. The Count, Louis de Nevers, was not on good terms with his subjects, and he turned for help against them to his suzerain, the King of France. One of Philip's first acts had been to defeat the Flemings in a bloody battle at Cassel, and to reinstate the Count, 
who was all the more bound to carry out the behests of his feudal lord. Thus, when Philip wished to embarrass England, he had a weapon ready to his hand, and in 1336 he obliged his vassal Louis to order the imprisonment of all English merchants in Flanders. Edward retorted by forbidding the export of wool and the import of cloth, a blow which must have been crushing to the prosperity of Flanders. The result of the measure was the rising of the towns and the traders against their ruler and their independent alliance with England. In the town of Ghent, a leader was found in the person of a rich weaver, Jacob van Artevelde, a man of great personal influence, eloquent and determined. On his advice, a policy of neutrality was adopted, and a commercial treaty was arranged by which English wool was once more obtained for Flemish looms. After war between England and France had actually been declared, it is said to have been Artevelde who urged Edward to proclaim himself king of the latter country. The Flemings were bound by solemn oaths to alliance with the French king, but their oaths did not give his name, and they were ready enough to obey King Edward rather than King Philip. In order, therefore, to gain their active support, the Fleur de Lys were quartered with the English leopards, and the first year of our reign in France was added to the date of all English state documents published in 1337. There was cause enough without doubt for the outbreak of war, and the pretext stood ready to hand in Edward's claim. One of those who urged him most strongly to the undertaking was a banished Frenchman, Robert of Artois, who had taken refuge in England after condemnation by the court of peers. The county of Artois was claimed by Robert, who disputed the title of his aunt Matilda, the actual possessor. A trial began in 1328, but Matilda and her daughter died shortly after under such very suspicious circumstances that Robert was accused of having poisoned them. Add to this that he was found to have forged documents to support his claim and to have used magic arts against the king and his family, and it is not surprising that he was condemned to banishment, nor that when in banishment he was ready to stir up any enemies against the king who had passed sentence upon him. A quaint ballad tells how, at a great banquet, Robert offered to King Edward a dish on which lay a heron, the most cowardly of birds, he said, for the most cowardly of monarchs. When Edward showed indignation at the taunt, he was asked how he could let a usurper enjoy his rights, and heeded with enthusiasm, he and all his companions vowed to depart forthwith to assert the English claims, many young nobles covering one eye and vowing not to open it again until they had done some deed of prowess on French soil. This story is doubtless a fiction, but nevertheless a good illustration of the light way in which war was undertaken in those days, when it was almost more necessary to find an excuse for peace than an excuse for fighting, and when a campaign in an enemy's country was very like a tournament on a larger and more dangerous scale. Edward, however, did not go to war unprepared. He began to form alliances and to seek for useful support. The emperor, Louis of Bavaria, recognized his claims and made him imperial vicar, an empty title enough. Although Louis gave no actual help, 
his support was nevertheless important, since it enabled several vassals of the empire to take up Edward's cause. Such were the dukes of Brabant and Gilders, the Margrave of Juliers and the Count of Hainaut, father of his wife, besides the Flemings of whom we have already spoken. Philip on his side had the Count of Flanders, King John of Bohemia, father of the future emperor, and several of the princes from the Pyrenees. The actual declaration of war was in 1337, and some fighting took place on the northeast frontier of France, but Philip avoided a pitched battle, and the first striking event in the struggle took place on the sea off the port of Chaluche. In 1340, Edward set sail to join his ally, the Count of Hainaut, but the French had suspected his movements, and as he approached Schluch, he saw so many vessels that their masts were like a wood at which he greatly marvelled. These were a fleet chiefly composed of Norman ships, which had already done damage on the English coast and captured one of our boats, the Christopher. Then began a battle fierce and hard on both sides, archers and crossbowmen shooting against one another, and men-at-arms fighting hand to hand, boldly and bitterly, and that they might better reach one another, they had great iron crooks attached to chains, which they threw into the enemy's ships and fastened them together, so that they might better board them and fight more hotly. The day ended in a victory for the English, and the recovery of the Christopher, after which a truce put an end to the fighting for the time being. By the victory, 1340, England gained a control over sea and shipping, which was most useful in the coming struggle. In the following year, events occurred in France which tended greatly to benefit the English and encourage Edward to recommence the conflict. The Duchy of Brittany was still a very independent feudal state, almost wholly removed from royal influence. Duke John III, who had been fighting as an ally of Philip, died in 1341, leaving no children, and a succession question arose curiously like that in France itself. John's next brother had died, leaving a daughter, Joan of Pontièvre, the nearest to the succession by right of birth, and she had married Charles of Blois, a nephew of the French king. A younger brother of the late duke, however, John of Montfort had seized the duchy and was supported by the greater number of the Bretons themselves. A struggle began between these rival claimants, backed up by France and England. In direct opposition to their own claims, Edward supported Montfort. Philip took up the cause of Charles of Blois. Then began a long and confusing struggle of more than twenty years' duration, which constantly hampered the French king and was full of romantic incidents. The chief combatants themselves were striking characters. Charles of Blois, a true medieval saint, was made up of opposing qualities. He treated his foes with cold-blooded cruelty, but he heard mass four or five times a day, wore pebbles in his shoes and knotted ropes round his body, and once indeed when he had captured a town and his soldiers were needlessly slaying the inhabitants, he first returned thanks to the cathedral and then stopped the massacre. John of Montfort himself played no very leading part. He was taken prisoner in the first year of the war and died in the fourth. 
His wife, Joan of Flanders, who had the courage of a man and the heart of a lion, continued the struggle. When her husband was taken, she brought her little son before her supporters at Rennes and claimed their aid. Do not lament, she said, for the Lord you have lost. Behold my little child who will be his avenger if God so will. I have wherewithal to fight, and you shall choose a captain who will be your comforter. From town to town she went raising the spirits of the garrisons, and finally held out in Enbon, which was besieged by Charles of Blois. Here she herself led a surprise party which burnt the enemy's tents, and it was her determination which prevented surrender until an English reinforcement came to her help. Like Sister Anne, she watched from a window for the promised succor until the moment of submission had almost come, but at last she was able to cry, Here comes the help for which I have been longing, and when Walter Manny and the English arrived, she kissed him and his companions one after the other two or three times, and those who saw her might well say, "'Twas a valiant dame. It would take too long to follow Foissart through the detailed account of skirmishes and sieges which went to make up the Breton War, but it can be easily seen how a disturbance like that was a godsend to the English king, who wanted nothing more than a good entry into France through the land of Brittany. In 1344, actual war was renewed between England and France with the sending of the Count of Derby into Guienne. But before Edward himself took active part in the struggle, he suffered a great loss in the death of his ally, Jacob van Artevelde, 1345. Various causes led to his murder. Probably the leader had made himself too powerful while struggles were arising between different trades, the fullers and the weavers being especially jealous of one another. The final impulse may have been given by news of Artevelde's conference with Edward when it was proposed to bestow Flanders on the young Prince of Wales. In any case, a riot rose in Ghent, Jacob was besieged in his house, and despite his eloquent appeal to the people, was killed without mercy. Edward, then at Schluch, sailed away, so moved and angered at the death of his friend that it would be marvel to tell, and the Count was reinstated in power. In 1346, Edward collected a force for the help of the Count of Derby in Guienne, but partly on account of contrary winds, partly by the advice of Godefroy d'Arcourt, another discontented Frenchman who had joined the English, he changed his undertaking into an invasion of the north and landed at La Hogue. The famous Crassy campaign is too well known to need a long account. Burning and pillaging, especially at Caen, and passing close to Paris at Poissy, where the Seine was crossed, the English army retreated toward the river Somme, followed closely by Philip, who had started after them from his capital. Every bridge had been destroyed to hinder their passage, but by the aid of a peasant, a ford at Blanchetac was found and crossed, despite a force of the enemy stationed on the opposite bank to check the advance. Philip, arriving soon after, was unable to pass at the same place, as it was only possible to do so whilst the tide was low. He thus lost some time by having to go round by Abbeville, so that the English army was strongly posted at Crecy 
before it was overtaken by the French. In the battle, 26th of August, 1346, which followed, the evils of the old military system were glaringly displayed. To meet the compact and disciplined force of the English, well supplied with archers and foot soldiers, France had a turbulent feudal levy, each leader thinking himself above authority and supreme over his own soldiers, whilst the Genoese crossbowmen, mercenaries despised by the French nobles, were in no way a match for the English with their longbow. Every detail of the day seemed to be to the disadvantage of the French. A storm of rain rendered the crossbows of the Genoese unprotected, apparently from the weather, almost useless. When the sun came out with renewed brightness after the storm, it shone full in the face of the Frenchmen. The two marshals quarreled before ever the battle began, and the first charge was a moment of wild confusion. The luckless mercenaries sent to open the fray were shot down by English archers in front and trampled on in the rear by the French cavalry which was pushing forward from behind. Nevertheless, the French fought bravely, if not wisely, and Edward's chaplain, writing after the fight, says modestly, The battle was hard and lasted long, for the enemy bore themselves most nobly, but praise be to God they were discomforted, and the king our adversary was put to flight. It was almost evening when the fighting began, and midnight before it was over, so that Edward camped on the field all night. Philip, forced from the battle, fled in the darkness to the castle of Bois, which opened its gates on recognizing his cry, Open, open, Chatelain, tis the unfortunate king of France. Many of the highest rank perished on the field, amongst others the Count of Flanders, the Duke of Lorraine, and the blind king of Bohemia, who was led by four knights that he might strike one blow in his friend's cause, and who was found dead, still attached to his leaders. Edward, as is well known, had left the burden and the honor of the day to his young son, the black prince, that the boy might win his spurs. He kissed him after the battle with words of praise. Fair son, God give you good perseverance. You are my son indeed, for loyally have you acquitted yourself this day. Well do you deserve to hold this land. From Crecy, the English marched upon Calais, and for eleven months the city bore the horrors of a siege, September 1346 to August 1347. Edward built for himself a regular town outside the walls. Villeneuve-la-Hardy, he called it, where he was joined by his wife, and where the English settled themselves comfortably down with houses and shops, determined to starve out the place rather than storm it by assault. This they very effectually did, blocking it by sea and land, and though Philip came within sight of the walls, he did nothing to help the brave defenders. The loss of Calais meant much to France, and as a safeguard for the channel and the passage of their ships, its possession was a great source of strength to the English. Once more a truce ended for a time the wearisome struggle. Shortly after these events, Philip the Sixth died, but he was succeeded by a son of very similar character, John the Good, 1350-64, like John of Bohemia, owed his title rather to the fact that he was open-handed and courteous and loved feasts and tourneys 
than to being in any sense a good king. Though like his father he was no general, he was brave, chivalrous, and a great admirer of all knightly deeds. His Order of the Etoile, intended as an imitation of King Arthur's Round Table, and with most elaborate rules as to dress and ceremonies, expressed well the character of its founder. When the struggle was once more renewed, success again favoured the English. At this juncture, Charles of Navarre becomes prominent. A grandson of Louis X of France, he possessed, besides his own kingdom of Navarre, scattered estates throughout France, especially between Paris and Normandy, which rendered his friendship of great value. John realized this when he gave him his little eight-year-old daughter in marriage, but there was no making sure of the slippery king who earned the title of the bad, even in those days of respect for rulers. He played fast and loose with both sides, encouraging the English to renew the contest, deserting them when they did as he advised, forcing King John to endless humiliations to win him over, and then proving the most uncertain of allies. At the date of the Black Prince's famous campaign of Poitiers, he was for the time being a supporter of France, having been forgiven by the king for his murder of the French constable, which had threatened to create a permanent breach between them. The chief seat of war was now the southwest. The nobles of Gascony were on the whole favorable to the cause of the English. Their country was very distinct from the rest of France, and they had been long accustomed to the rule of their distant suzerain in England, whom they found less interfering than one nearer at hand. At the present moment, too, they were suffering from a high-handed procedure on the part of Jean d'Armagnac, a great baron of the south, in the service of King John. They therefore wished the Prince of Wales to come to their help, and received him with many expressions of loyalty. After a devastating campaign in the south, 1355 to 1356, in which many towns and much booty fell into his hands, the Black Prince turned northwards with the intention of joining forces with the Duke of Lancaster, but he was met by John at the head of a very large army, confident of cutting to pieces the small English force. Prince Edward chose his ground well, not far from the town of Poitiers, and there awaited attack. He was stationed on a plateau sloping down to a marshy valley, guarded from the French by a hedge along which the archers were planted, and which had one gap in it, led up to by a road. With the exception of a small force for skirmishing, the soldiers were on foot in order to make the most of the rough ground and their defensive position, but with horses at hand to use if a charge was wanted. On Saturday, 17th September, 1356, the prince took up his station. Sunday was spent in fruitless negotiations conducted by the Cardinal of Perigord, an emissary of the Pope, who had long been endeavouring to end the useless bloodshed. In vain, however, the churchmen rode from one army to the other suggesting terms. The prince refused to treat. He had no power, he said, to make peace without the consent of the king his father, and the cardinal, although he renewed the attempt next morning, could no longer command attention. Edward was busy encouraging his soldiers. If we are small in numbers compared to the enemy, let us not fear for that, for victory does not lie with the multitude, but where God shall give it. 
If we win the day, the more glory to us. If we die, there are those who will avenge us. On Monday, 19th of September, the Battle of Poitiers was fought. It was a surprisingly easy victory. The French mistakes were very similar to those of Cassy, arising chiefly from rashness and lack of discipline, but there was also a want of firmness among the nobles which caused them to lose the reputation for bravery which had been considered their one redeeming feature. The two French marshals and their cavalry rode first to the attack but were thrown into dire confusion as they advanced up the road to the gap by the arrows showered upon them by the archers along the hedge, and they threw into disorder and panic the troop which was advancing behind them. Advance, sire, advised the prince's friend, Sir John Chandos, the day is yours. Charge on the division of your adversary, the King of France, for there is the heart of the business. Forward, John, was the reply, you will never see me retreat. The three eldest sons of the French king and their division fled before the onslaught. In the thick of the battle, John himself with his youngest son Philip, who never left his side, held out till all was lost, surrendering in the end to a knight of Artois. Had a quarter of his men resembled him, the day would have been for them, says Foissart, not considering that something more than courage goes to the winning of a battle. The treatment of the captured monarch illustrates well the best side of the chivalry of the time. John was brought to the tent where the prince was resting after his exertions. The latter welcomed him with all honor. He bowed low and received him as king, well and wisely, as he well knew how to do, and commanded wine and spices to be brought, which he himself gave to the king in sign of great love. That evening, Edward gave a banquet to the chief of his prisoners, at which he served the king with his own hands, and begged him not to let his defeat spoil his appetite, for you have great reason to rejoice, although the affair has not ended to your wishes, for today you have won for yourself a name of renown, and have surpassed all the brave warriors of your party. As usual, the victory did not lead to any great results. A truce followed, and next year, John was conducted to honorable captivity in England, where he hunted and feasted and enjoyed life with the best. His one return to France was after the Treaty of Bretigny, when he went back to arrange the details of the peace and to collect his own ransom, failing in which he returned to his easy imprisonment and died in the Tower of London. End of section 13